All right. Welcome to this week's episode of Unfortunately Required Reading. This week we're discussing Wuthering Heights or avoiding it as much as possible. Yeah, we've spent the last uh, 15 minutes not talking about this book. (laughs) So the creative title for this episode is Withering Interest because my friend Mike in high school coined that and I have never gotten over it. Yeah, uh, at the top of the show, our friends uh, Fuckboys of Literature asked us... uh, did we consider throwing these books out of the window? So I will scrap that from our questions section. And I will say for the first time, I have considered defenestration against a book. I had it on my phone and I love my phone enough to not throw yeet. it. <laughs> yeah, I did not eat my phone. However, I did have to stop multiple times and go, sweet Lord, I'm doing this for the podcast. Um, I've read this book twice before now. Um, once freshman year of high school. And I remembered nothing of it because then we had to read it again for AP Lit in senior year. And then at that point in time, I kind of suffered through it because I thought, oh, no, no, no. It's so romantic. Heathcliff is so romantic. Heathcliff is not fucking romantic. I just squinted at Tori very loudly. Uh, So that's this book. Uh, I admit that there is a lot of instances where, with the best of intentions, I try to get through a book and I fail between day job and uh, living my life. This is one where I have actively reveled in. I did not finish this. I told Amanda that because I knew that I would have a hard time sitting there and going through the book, like the hardcover book again, I put it on audiobook. And for the entire last hour of the book, I had it on 3.5 time just so it would go faster and get done because I felt like I was being tortured. So that's this book. Uh, what are we drinking? We are drinking a Fre- lavender French 75. Yeah. Uh, Tori messaged me and said, I would like to infuse lavender into gin to which I said, I will not object. Uh, so it's all the basic players of a French 75. We're using a Victorian lemonade and, uh, Spumante, Andre Spumante, our dear friend. Uh, it is floral. It's very floral. Um, So I've been infusing the gin for two and a half days, and I kind of feel like I probably could have just gotten away with one. I think it also might just be the concentration of lavender, because lavender is one of those things that, like, you think that you need a lot. Because, like, I have that with elderflower liqueur. I tend to pour heavy on Saint-Germain, and then you get a cocktail, it's like, poof, flowers. Yes. Like, there's a... To and not, I did use a lot of lavender. To not, talk sure. about, to not talk about this book, uh, do you remember the old Strawberry Shortcake movie from, like, the 90s? Probably in passing. So, like, that was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, and uh, there's this part where the purple pie maker, who's evil, which I just love, he's the purple pie maker, and uh, his evil counterpart are, like, turning all things, like, different flavors, because it's, it's a Strawberry Shortcake movie. And she has this, Strawberry Shortcake has this owl who's, like, eating a bush full of, like, white flowers because he thinks it's, like, candy. And, like, whenever something is too floral to me, that's what I think of. It's just, like, this owl, like, eating a bush full of flowers. Because like, eh! that's what it's like. It's, like, something that you think. Like, I have that with jasmine tea a lot. Oh, yeah. Because jasmine tea is either, like, oh, this is so floral. Or, like, someone just, like, whip you in the face with a bush. It hits you with this plant. So, it's good. Like, I think in different proportions, all of these pieces work. I think maybe it just might be a little bit too much lavender. Yeah, but it's, it's not it's not unpleasant. It's about as dry for a cocktail as I get though. Yeah. And I love dry, so I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah, I'm I'm I'll I'll work my way through it. So you got this really awesome cheese. 
I did. I got a white Stilton with a candied lemon peel in it. And your uh, cheesemonger friend said that it was uh It's a love or hate cheese. Like, it's... White Stilton is still, like, a blue. It's still a blue cheese, and it has a candied lemon, which is actually one of those things that I quite like. Uh, I know that not everyone likes it, but I'm actually, like, a bit of a slut for citrus in a weird way. I want that on a sticker. Bit of a slut for citrus. I can do that. (laughs) I can do that. Like, I am a bit of a slut for citrus. Uh, So, there's also two kinds of bread. There is a hollow roll, because hollow makes me hollow. Yes, you did it, so I didn't have to. <laughs> I, I could feel it. And then uh, there's a Kaiser roll, uh, because when I was in Austria, uh, Kaiser rolls, cheese, and honey is how I survived. That's funny, because when I lived in Scotland, I lived off of strawberry jam, butter, and white bread. <laughs> yeah, there's a... Tesco, man, Tesco. I think it's Butterkasse. Like, it's a, it's a very, like, alpine cheese, Kaiser rolls, and honey. Like, that was breakfast for me. Like, almost every day in Austria and a lot of coffee. That's really good. I'm so glad you like it. Let's see. I don't hate it. It is very sweet. It is very sweet. It's got that little, like, crumbly forgiveness. It's definitely a a dessert cheese. I can imagine this with honey is probably delightful. So, uh, we're eating and drinking much better than this book deserves. Mm -hmm. Let's just be honest. Uh... This I think, is like 1984 where we did this because we wanted to feel better about our lives. I don't know why we did this because, again, we're jumping the shark. I've never had to read this. I have. I've heard. I hate it. Uh, so Sorry. this is weird because normally in situations like this, when uh, podcasters or movie critics have to do something terrible, it's because patrons have told them to. None of our patrons have asked us to hurt ourselves. Listen, you know me and you know that I am a masochist. <laughs> I do know that you're a masochist, and I, as a sadist, am just very confused. Um, so I somehow have managed to not uh, read this my entire life. I'm watching Tori struggle in vain to make a taco out of this cheese. Listen, I live in San Antonio. It's a problem. <laughs> and I just... It's its quite admirable. It is like watching a Sisyphus roll a boulder up a hill. <laughs> Listen, you've got small pleasures rolling a boulder up a hill, so Sisyphus, I don't think, hated it the whole time. I mean, if you listen to Camus, that is exactly true. I love Camus. I am sad he was taken from us. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd be dead by now anyways, but like... The Stranger is actually one of my favorite books of all time. I can see that for you. Yeah. We are not talking about this book. No, see, we're running from it in the opposite direction as far as possible. It's such a bad book. I say this with love. If you haven't gotten your bingo cards out, you're probably going to get a bingo this round, so I would pull it out, because there's a lot of talk about racism. I think... Please show us on uh, Twitter if you've ever gotten to bingo or on Facebook, because I would love to actually like see see where someone did the bingo. I would like to give people prizes for bingo. I would also love to give people prizes for bingo, uh, especially, you know what? I'm feeling magnanimous with how horrible this episode is. <laughs> well, the book, the episode's fine, I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're at the start of the episode. <laughs> I'm trying. I think that we will give out a prize to our favorite bingo card. I think so, so too. Collect, uh, get out your bingo cards. They're on the website. Uh, don't use the caller card because that's cheating. Uh, download one and show us your bingos. Uh, Happy Hunger Games. Now, this is not a short story long at all. So basically, I wrote an, an entire novella. fucking summary of the book. It's, okay. 
this this part of me is part of me trying to help you so you can get out of this book. Okay, if you need to tap out, just let me know. Okay. Because this is, I think you've actually written more than some of the Brontes have written. <laughs> That's true. I know. I know I've written more than their brother. Hey, anyway. hey, hey, hey. Don't talk about him. I like him. So a gentleman named Lockwood has rented a manor house called Thrushcross Grange in the middle of the wars of England. Okay, Lachlan, get your life right. Okay, the crap. plane. The plane doesn't want us to talk about the book. <laughs> I think I, I just uh, I just triangulated my location. You did. Crap. <laughs> I don't live on the base, just in case you're wondering. We could not get away with this buffoonery on base. Oh man. no, not at all. So anyway, a guy named Lockwood has rented a manor house called Thrushcross Grange. He decides he's going to go out and meet his his landlord. So he goes to meet Heathcliff, who's a wealthy, grumpy fuck who lives in a manor house called Weathering Heights that's four miles from Thrushcross Grange. He walks all that way? Yes, because for fuck's sake, I don't know. Heathcliff's dogs freak out on him, bite him. So he says, you know what? I'll just come back tomorrow. Why? Why? Take your keys and run, sir. He goes to leave. Then he goes back the next day. He's like, I need to find out what the hell is going on with these crazy people in this house because, oh my gosh, their servants are nut jobs and so are they. So the next day he goes back. Why? He goes to leave, but a storm keeps him stuck at the house overnight because literally he will not find his way out on the moors. Heathcliff says, no, I don't want you in my house. But their housekeeper, who is the real MVP, Nellie Dean, sneaks Lockwood up into an unused bedroom and tells him to keep his mouth fucking shut. So Lockwood is in there and he finds a journal that involves two kids, Catherine and Heathcliff, and he hears a weird noise and sees a ghost at the window. That ghost is Kathy. Lockwood asks Nellie Dean to tell him the story of why Heathcliff is the way he is. Nellie gives in and Lockwood starts writing down the story. Nellie remembers being a young servant at Wuthering Heights for the owner of the manor, Mr. Earnshaw. Earnshaw has an older son named Henley, a daughter named Catherine, from here on out Kathy, and after Mr. Earnshaw went to Liverpool for a business trip, he comes back with a dark-skinned orphan boy he names Heathcliff. I don't know if that's the name that Heathcliff came with or like, if he was given it. It's kind of like... Is this a root scenario? Yeah, it feels like he went and adopted a dog at a shelter. Like, that's how he... Anyway. Oh, um, he's going to raise this new kid. And I should probably mention here a content warning. We're going to have some discussion of child abuse. So Some? Some, yes. He's going to raise the new kid with this other kid's. And this goes about as well as expected, as Henley hates his new brother and wants to make his life a living hell. Kathy, however, quickly comes to love him, and both she and Heathcliff become inseparable jerk kids who hang out on the moors. So basically, think of the kids who, like, break things in your neighborhood. That's these kids. Okay. <clears throat> Mr. Earnshaw starts to really like Heathcliff over his son, Henley. Irritated, Mr. Earnshaw sends Henley to college as a kid, so, like, boarding school. And three years later, Mr. Earnshaw kicks the bucket and Henley takes over Wuthering Heights with his new wife, Frances. Henley is excited because he gets to destroy Heathcliff now and turns him into a laborer in the fields. Which is not at all racist. Not at all racist. No. Uh. Kathy and Heathcliff stay super close in complete holy terrors. One night, they wander over to Thrushcross Grange to pretend to be ghosts and freak out Edgar and Isabel Linton, who are the neighbors, the super snobbish kids who live there. While trying to escape without being caught, Kathy is bit by their dog and has to stay at the Grange for five weeks. Ties back into the dog biting at the beginning. Ooh, Mrs. Linton decides to make Kathy a proper young lady and less of a holy terror. When she comes back five weeks later, 
she's pretty much dating Edgar, and her relationship with Heathcliff gets even more complicated. Hinley's wife dies giving birth, that's Francis, to a kid named Harriton. Hinley becomes completely abusive and a total alcoholic and almost kills his own son multiple times, but Heathcliff saves him, much to his chagrin. Kathy gets distant from Heathcliff, but realizes that she needs to rise in station or be stuck with her shitty brother. So she agrees to marry Edgar and Linton from his marriage proposal, despite the fact that she tells Nellie that she's in love with Heathcliff. Heathcliff runs away for three years and comes back right after Kathy and Edgar have gotten married. Edgar have gotten married. <laughs> Heathcliff comes back wealthy as fuck and ready for revenge. No one knows how he came into his money, and he's not telling anyone, which makes everyone believe it's probably shady. He yes. lends money to Henley, knowing Henley will fall more into debt and alcoholism. Henley ends up dying as he drinks more than Boris Yeltsin did. Rude. And Heathcliff, and Heathcliff inherits Wuthering Heights and goes even further into revenge. Kathy has a complete breakdown over Heathcliff. And while she's really sick, Heathcliff seduces and marries Edgar's sister, Isabella, to piss off Kathy for additional revenge. He also kills Isabella's dog before they leave. And she still leaves with him anyway. And treats her like complete shit. Kathy dies giving birth to a daughter, also named Kathy, so it gets even more complicated. And Heathcliff begs her spirit to stay on Earth and take whatever form she wants, drive him crazy, or whatever, just don't leave him. Isabella runs away to London, gives birth to Heathcliff's son, which she names Linton, to piss off Heathcliff. Can we pause just for a second? <clears throat> yes. If anyone in real life ever did this, this would be a Dr. Phil two-hour special. No shit. The really crazy thing is, like, Heathcliff even tells Nellie Dean multiple times about Isabella that he's doing exactly what he can so she cannot seek an actual divorce. Because it's not enough to get a divorce. That's what a manipulative little shit he is. Anyway. Please continue. I'm tired already. Kathy Jr. grows up at Thrushcross Grange with her dad, and she's taken care of by Nellie Dean, who has moved over there full time. She's beautiful, but still kind of a jerk like her mom. She doesn't know anything about Wuthering Heights at all, and one day on the moor, she finds Wuthering Heights and plays with Harriton. Isabella dies, Linton goes to live with Heathcliff, and Heathcliff, of course, treats his kid like crap. Kathy Jr. meets Heathcliff on the moors, and he's like, oh, hey, I have a kid about your age. You guys should hang out. She meets Linton, and they start a secret romance through letters, as neither of them have very many options on the moors. Nellie destroys the letter, so Kathy decides to start sneaking out to see Linton, who is super frail. Of course, Kathy is the only one actually writing her own letters. Heathcliff is writing the ones for Linton. Or forcing him to, which is awful. She finds out Linton is only pursuing her because Heathcliff is making him so he can inherit Thrushcroft Grange as well. Edgar is super sick and about to die. Kathy Jr. gets called to Wuthering Heights where she's held captive until she agrees to marry Linton. Edgar dies. Linton dies. Kathy stays stuck at the house. Nellie ends her story. Lockwood goes, oh shit, this guy is nuts. And ends his rental agreement and goes back to London, which is the first smart thing he does. He comes back six late, months later, though, because he wants to hang out with Nellie. Heathcliff has been talking to Kathy's ghost. He spends the night walking on the moors and dies. Thank God. Catherine and Harriton have fallen in love and get married. Lockwood goes to visit the graves of Kathy and Heathcliff. The reader immediately throws the book into the fire, screams, and asks why, oh God, why were they being tortured? So I used the word defenestration earlier, and I just realized that not everyone might know what the word defenestration means. Defenestration is a very, very fancy word that basically means to throw out of a window. Yes. Coming from a famous series of defenestrations that happened in Prague, 
during the Protestant years where a bunch of Catholics threw people out of the window and vice versa. The defenestrations of Prague were a thing. Just a bunch of people throwing each other out of windows to prove a point. One of them ended up being a miracle for a saint. Hmm. Yeah, he landed in a pile of horse shit and he didn't die. So it's like, he's a saint, I guess. The bar for Catholic sainthood sometimes is very low. (laughs) All St. Sebastian had to do was die hot. And this guy had to fall into some horse shit. That's it. Saint. Uh, I... I don't take pleasure in not finishing the assignment because that's the thing with doing a literature podcast that we get busy. This book was so bad that I couldn't finish it. It's it's tough. For me, it's tough because I hate Heathcliff so much, which is weird because when I was younger, I put all the blame on Kathy. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm older... Uh, Heathcliff had the option to go out and make something of himself and like take that abuse and do something else with it. Mm. And he fucking doesn't. We'll talk about nature versus nurture. Yes. Um, so obviously my opinion is Heathcliff is an insufferable dickbag. Okay. Okay. I don't think that you're wrong. I think, I think where I'm complicated with this is one, the racist aspect of it mm-hmm. is that if, uh, Insert Bronte here. I don't remember which one this is. Emily. Sure. <laughs> Insert whatever Bronte here. Um, that's another t-shirt. <laughs> uh, if this is truly a child of literally any descent that isn't European, it is scapegoating this child. And I, as a brown person, have a hard time with this. Because there is a very, very long history of putting negative traits into like one brown person. And then claiming that they uh, lower the levels of anyone else around them. Kathy does too, though. Yeah. She's wide as the day is long. Well, but that's the whole thing. Is So I do like that. I mean, that might be the only good part is that it does seem like Kathy would be a hellion even without Heathcliff. But like the idea that like maybe he made her worse. Like that kind of. So racism. The whole passage where she tries to blame Heathcliff for everything that's happened. And Heathcliff is like, no, you did this shit to yourself. Mm-hmm. And he's not wrong. They're both so awful that I kind of wish they had just let them be together. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of flack for not liking romance. And it's like, it's not that I don't like romance, but I don't like when abusive people ruin people that don't need to be ruined. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be the standard in most romances, is that it's usually, like, one abusive dickbag and a lamp who doesn't deserve this. So, I come off as not liking romance. It's like, no, I don't like perpetuating abuse. So, at least in this instance, like, I'm fine with two terrible broken people being terrible and broken together. Like, that's okay to me. And, I mean, Nellie, as the narrator, does try multiple times to make a so that Heathcliff does have redeemable qualities. She mentions that how he's abused by Henley. She talks about, you know, how he's treated, how he's locked out of rooms, how he's kept away. At one point in time, Kathy goes upstairs, the door is locked, so she crawls around the edge of the house and goes in through an open window so she can hang out with Heathcliff. Like, you don't need to lock your kids in a fucking room. True. But, I mean, it's... It's awful on all sides. I I truly feel bad for the Linton family, though. 
I really do. Why didn't they just move? Because it was their manor house that had been in their family for generations. Claim a ghost and burn it down. They had insurance back then. I don't know why they didn't just send Isabella to London in the beginning. Like, right. Like, they knew that she had a thing for Heathcliff. Like, you could have honestly claimed on your insurance. Because there was insurance back then. You could say house haunted and you could leave. 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 Ah, this book hurts about as much as this lavender in a cup. So, initially I was going to try to defend Catherine, but I've read this book again and I'm not going to defend her. Is there anyone who needs to be defended? I feel like Nellie Dean is the only person other than Lockwood who's redeemable. Mostly because Lockwood makes stupid decisions in the very beginning. Um, and I feel like Isabella, I feel like she's an idiot, mm -hmm. but she's an idiot in the way that a lot of us are when we're younger. And we're like, I see all of these red flags on the field, but it's okay. He loves me. Um, and the hard thing is, too, Heathcliff multiple times talks about how he doesn't love her. Flat out tells her he doesn't love her. And she still goes with him. All right, I'm waiting for another plane to go by. The planes don't want us to do this. I feel like we should take this as a sign. As a sign? This book is terrible. You know, okay, I'm sorry. I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer. If this is your favorite book, I would like to know why. Yes. Genuinely. Because it's, I think it's easy for us to shit on something that we forced ourselves to read. Except for me, because I didn't finish it. Um, I think it's easy for us to shit on books, but if this is, like, your favorite, I just want to know why. Like, I want to understand things from a different perspective, because... I think that's the fun of doing a podcast like this is getting different perspectives. And I think on most books, we're usually, we're usually pretty in concert with how we feel. I think this one, we're pretty in sync with how we feel. Uh, I think the plane is gone. Do you want to talk about yeah. symbols? Sure. Uh, I love your notes. Rocks with names on them. I mean, like, that was a thing. It's like, I found this rock. We're going to build a house here. It's biblical. There we go. That's the answer. Sorry. It's, it's, it's anticlimactic. But, like, oh, I found a rock with my name on it. I'm going to build a great home here. It's fucking biblical. That's a, there's your answer. Write that on your AP test. There you go. <laughs> it's fucking biblical. And then turning your AP exam. I do think it's funny that the home is Wuthering Heights because everybody is basically just enduring their lives until they die there. <laughs> just like us reading this book. Um, the moors are desolate, unforgiving, easy to die on, hard to navigate, and bad for farming. I've had to Google several pictures of the moors. Yes. And, um, why would you live there? Um, free land, people leave you alone. I have a picture of me in Scotland on the moors, spinning around and singing. Because that's, <laughs> that's what happened. I'll have to find that picture. Um. I have not been to Scotland. Hence my desire for a Scottish husband. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it. I now have this huge desire to go to the Roslyn Chapel and stuff. And not for anything that has to do with Dan Brown, y'all. I would go for every reason that has to do with Dan Brown. <laughs> so, if we get enough patron, patron support, if we get to take our Viking River cruise. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> That's our goal for 2021, is how do we take a Viking River cruise? Oh my gosh, I want to go to Russia so bad. I... I think I'm too black. You might have a hard time. I don't know. 
I think I'm too I'm, black. I'm, I might be too American, so. <laughs> so then maybe not go to Russia together. We can go to Romania, where we just have money, and that's all that matters. So another symbol is Kathy's ghost being stuck in one place. Kathy in live saying she and Heathcliff's souls are made of the same thing. So it makes sense that she can't go on until he dies too. Yeah. I mean, honestly, ghosts in any book are going to be like a red flag to talk about. Um, I only, the reason why I don't like this, and this was another thing I made, is that it devalues her soul so much that it ties it to a person. Mm-hmm. And that really just kind of like inherently bothers me. Because, like, even as, even if it's a couple that's healthy and is romantic, the idea of, like, waiting for someone else, like, in death kind of bothers me. I don't know. It might just be because of, like, my own trauma, like, my parents dying and everything. But, like, the whole idea of, like, oh, well, you know, they were 90 years old and they've been married since, like, the 30s or whatever. And then, you know, eight minutes apart they died. It's like, okay, sure. You still have value outside of your spouse. Like, you can love a person and, like, still have life to live. You know what I mean? That might be really, really cynical of me, but, like... I don't disagree. Thank you. Because, <laughs> like, I, you know, you, you get those stories all the time of, like, oh, they were married for 90 years, or I mean, that, that makes, like, a thousand, I don't know. They were married for, like, a million years, and, you know, they died eight minutes apart. And it's, like, I guess those are better, but, like, the idea, like, oh, and he waited for her for, like, 50 years. Fucking why? Remarry. Do something. Start knitting. And like for Heathcliff, though, please don't remarry. Please uh, go see a therapist and work on yourself. Were there therapists? No, there were no therapists okay. at this time. <clears throat> go see a chaplain and work on yourself. Well, he's dark, so can he go see a chaplain I mean, and work maybe. on himself? What freaks me out the most is that he does that part where he gets her morning locket, rips Edgar's hair out of it, puts his own in. Like, you're, you're desecrating a corpse, sir. Like, what are you doing? That's so petty. It is so petty. I normally admire that, but that's so... Okay, to, to tie it back to racism, I didn't read the book, and I don't think that, insert Bronte here, is a good enough writer to mention... I'm not giving her a name at this point. <laughs> Dude, Emily died, all right? <laughs> They're all dead. <laughs> Were the rest immortal up until this point? I'll go into some of that. Um, May, it, okay, no, none of them are. Where, where did this? Where did Heathcliff come from? Okay, that part I don't know. Okay, because um, I want to know what he is. So what's fascinating is they basically just refer to him as being brown, which means that he could be a moor, not in the sense of the land. But as in, I know, I know, yeah. I know about the Moors. I know this is for them. This is not for you. They should or know about the Moors too. They refer to him as a racial slur that I absolutely hate. Um, starts with a G. People oh. use as wanderers multiple times. It's a slur for the Romani or the Roma um, who don't deserve to be called that. They do not. No. Um, but they call him that Frequent. five, six times. Okay, cool. And so, like, the culture at the time would have seen them as thieves and shit like that. So, and okay. So there's a distinct possibility that he is not so far othered. Well, one of the interesting things is, and I've seen this for multiple people talking and, and kids asking this question too, is Heathcliff, Mr. Earnshaw's biological kid. 
did he sleep? Like a Thomas Jefferson? Yeah. Did he sleep with somebody in town? And then every time he made a business trip, go and take care of it. And did his mother die? It. And so he feels like he has to take Heathcliff in. Yeah. So like a Thomas Jefferson kind of yeah. thing. Okay. Or I... was it because they, they try to make it sound a little bit like it was out of Mr. The, the goodness of Mr. Earnshaw's heart. But if that was the case, he also could have paid for his education at another school or done multiple things. And because of Mr. Earnshaw's good name, he could have gotten away with it. But it kind of feels more like he's hiding Heathcliff at the home. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have to have this kid out in public. Okay. I just, I think I'm trying to understand the race part of it because I want to understand why all of this negativity is around this one person and saying that he's either Moorish or possibly Romani for this time period makes a lot of sense. Cause it's mm-hmm. definitely not in a stage of history where he could be like of Africa black. I mean, I know the Moors technically are, but like they weren't really considered to be. Yeah, so they're usually considered to be more of Arab descent or right. Even though is. that's technically still Africa. Yeah. I, I know. I understand. <laughs> I, 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 that's one of my favorite things. It's like, oh yeah, Egypt, that's not Africa. It's like, yeah, it is. Like if you look at a map, um, it, it technically is, sir. Um, but okay. I was trying to understand that because I was trying to just wrap my head around whatever this kid looked like. Because also before we even really dip into colorism and everything, uh, what people describe as dark definitely changes culture to culture. Well, and it's hard too because every adaptation of Wuthering Heights that you've seen, like down down to Lawrence Olivier and moving forward, Heathcliff is always played by a white guy with dark hair and dark eyes. And that's it. That's right. as dark as he gets. Right. And like He's a we're hot talking, topic assistant manager. Yeah, we're talking Tom Hardy, like we're talking um Ralph Fiennes, that kind of thing. Still very, very, very clearly white. Right. And so I think that that gets glossed over a lot of times in adaptations. And maybe that's good because we don't have the cultural desire to continue to scapegoat brown people. Because if there was a movie where all of the negativity was linked to one black guy, there would be riots. (laughs) Isn't that like Birth of a Nation? Yeah. Okay. And we see how well that's perceived now. By most of society. Unfortunately, there are too many who still see it as a blueprint. So, uh, do we want to talk about how revenge is apparently bad? Yes. So, as far as themes, the destructive nature of revenge. This book is basically textbook revenge destroying everyone. Um, And that's, that's a very, very big theme of instead of being innocent or going towards forgiveness... No one is really forgiven until both Heathcliff and Kathy are dead. Um, and then they're, quote, forgiven in death because they're with each other. And it's like, oh, my God. Fuck you, nameless Bronte. Social class and it being destructive is another huge theme. I want to go back to revenge briefly. Okay. Of course you do. <laughs> Don't judge <laughs> It's kind of like, are we talking about revenge or torture? Amanda. Hello. I disagree with this only because uh, there is something that's incredibly satisfying about revenge. And whenever people dogpile on it, it actually just makes me very unhappy. Because if it wasn't so psychologically pleasing, we wouldn't do it. 
if you couldn't get off on it, we wouldn't keep doing this. And there's a part of me. Maybe if Heathcliff was written better and he didn't have the name of a cartoon cat. Oh my god. That's all I imagine. Is a is a Garfield knockoff. I know he came first. Can I quit the podcast? No, you can't. <laughs> it is a Garfield knockoff. Like me. <laughs> Just being a petty asshole. I would almost admire it if this book was written by a better person. But I don't think that revenge needs to be that destructive. And this honestly doesn't even feel like revenge. I think for me, especially because I did read more ethnicity into him, it almost just felt like, and here's a bingo mark, like a Django Unchained power fantasy where I'm going to fuck up all these white people. And that's a lot of it. I mean, multiple times he has been told, like, okay, you basically got your revenge. You destroyed this person. This person is dead. He's like, yeah, but who else can I fuck up? Right. Like, it, it just, and I'm not saying that that's okay, but, like, because I think I projected more ethnicity onto him. It did just feel like Django Unchained, where it's like, how can I, how can I fuck up all these white folk? It it, it almost feels biblical, the whole like affecting onto the seventh upon seventh right. generation, that kind of thing. Like, like just, and even then, like I think when we use revenge, because right, like if this happened in the Bible, we wouldn't read it as petty. We'd just be like, well, that's a thing that God does. But like we read it with a dubiously ethnic person, and suddenly it's bad. That's racist. If Heathcliff was more white, would we care that much? Probably not. Yeah, like, it's... He would just be, oh, he's a difficult man. Right, he'd be a proto-Draco Malfoy, or a Lucius Malfoy. And that's one of the other big themes that we were calling out as dark-skinned children being considered of less value than light-skinned children in a lot of I don't know. Um... And, I mean, we've, we've even talked about this before, like, the different ways people of color are treated depending on the lightness or darkness of their skin. Right. Like, I have a note in here that um, that perception is called colorism uh, for people in of color communities. And it's racism for anyone else. Like, that's just how it is. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. Um, but, like, it's, it's called colorism. And I experienced it as an African-American where because I'm on the lighter, air quote, spectrum that I get a fair amount of colorism from my brothers and sisters who are darker than me. And in all fairness, the people that are lighter than me, I still get it. So like, even looking at my family, I have aunts that are lighter than me and I have aunts that are darker than me and I'm somewhere in the middle. And it's this weird disassociative thing of like, how black am I? Um, Shameless plug, next week on my blog, I talk about race, colorism, and uh, avatar generators. Uh, being someone of color and like ha- how I had like a existential breakdown over what level of black I am trying to find like the Pantone color. And I'll, um, on the website, I'll put a link to Amanda's blog so you guys can check it out next week. Yeah. But, um, and also this scapegoating of darker people as being negative, because if we are reading him as Romani, then these are all traits that we would have negatively associated to those people falsely that we would have falsely attributed to these people um it was the only good thing that the hunchback in notre dame the animated movie did was trying to well except for the part in the court of miracles but i mean like that's a protective measure Mm. 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 something that you see in communities that are um horrifically destroyed on a regular basis is you start to develop your own terms you start to develop your yep. own rules. 
you start to develop your own protections. Yeah, I there's a there's an interesting socio uh, cultural thought that a uh, gun control is a form of uh, racism because in a lot of like lower uh, lower class black communities, a gun means safety. And that instability has come from white destabilization. So if you want to enact gun control in a sweeping way like that, you are taking safety away from people to make others feel comfortable. I personally don't agree with that thought process, but the logic behind it I can respect and understand. But um, it's kind of, you're right, communities of color and marginalized communities do come up with their own language. If you ever have a free time looking up a dual language of queer people was fascinating. Uh, don't use it unless you are part of the community because there's nothing that drives me more crazy than basic target moms going, yes, honey, slay. Yes, queen, work! Like, Becky, be quiet. So I'm going back to social class and it being destructive. I don't think it is! For, for this, for Kathy, it is. Okay, because fine. her whole life, obviously, she's been raised in one way, which is hysterical. Because she doesn't even want to be raised that way. That's, that's what blows my mind is she doesn't want the dresses. She doesn't want the money. But she's so afraid to fall out of that class that she's like, I'm going to marry this guy that I don't really like. But, like, he's my neighbor. And, I mean, he's kind of nice to me. So, but, like, I really love Heathcliff, but I really shouldn't. Like, I don't know. Because she even says, like, in straight up to Nellie Dean, like, hey, um... I don't really want to be with him. I'd rather be with Heathcliff, but you know, like I don't want to fall out of social favor. Society hasn't accepted marrying an anthropomorphic cat. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I want to see that fan art. I don't. Is this where I ruined the podcast? I quit. No, I'm just kidding. There's, um, there's some names that are forever ruined and I'm learning that Heathcliff is one of them. It's just a weird orange cat. So I like to throw the pathetic fallacy in wherever I can. Um, a lot of the weather in this book follows what's going on. Rain, snow. Yeah. I anyway. don't care. I, nobody, I, I no, hate the pathetic fallacy so much. I was like, nobody cares unless you're, you're in college lit and you have to write it into a paper. Sorry, yeah. Professor Silver. I love you very much. Do uh, you? I do love Professor Silver. She was amazing. She told us the whole story about her husband leaving her for another um, temporary speaker who then I had a class with. It was really Ooh. awkward, but I was like, hmm, actually, I know this whole thing. So My, uh, my astronomy teacher was showing us pictures from uh, one of the Galileo museums in Italy, and he said, uh, this is a picture of Galileo's toe. This was taken right before my wife left me. And it's like, I think I understand why your wife left you if you took her to Italy and you're taking a picture of a dead astronomer's toe. Because I also might leave you. So nature versus nurture is a very, very big theme in this book as well. Um, I think if anyone treated Heathcliff the way that he gets treated, they'd probably be protective of themselves and kind of a dick in some cases. However... Yeah, you're talking to... You're talking to two people who I can comfortably say do not have great life histories. I'm just saying, I know a lot of people who were abused as children. A lot of them. Sexually, um, physically, emotionally. And they are amazing human beings. So 
Well, and I don't even want to make it that black and white to make this about race again. <laughs> You're welcome. I love you. I love you too. Um, I think, I think that there is room because I've aired some of my personal trauma on this podcast. I wouldn't air all of it because I could be a whole other show. And also like, I don't know if y'all don't need to hear that. Um, but there are definitely instances where my trauma has indeed traumatized me. And I am not always this beautiful, self-actualized unicorn of perpetual grace and mercy. Sometimes I'm a petty asshole. And you know what? You'll see it. And that's one of the things that like, I encourage you, especially if you have um, family or very close friends who have been abused, understand that a lot of times the way that they will respond to something is very different than somebody who has not been. I don't know what you're talking about. I respond to everything exactly as I should, <laughs> whether it's hysterical laughter or. Well, the, the, and that's the funny thing too, is like, I don't know. I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. There's this a, dis, there's a disassociation when you're traumatized that, and especially if you come from like a traumatized family, because it does tend to perpetuate itself. Like you're, mm, it colors your world in a weird way. I keep making, I keep using alliterations like color and race, and I apologize. Um, I blame the lavender. That, you know, you have these stories that you tell about your family, and then you tell them to someone else, and it's like, that's not normal. I had a friend that I told him all the stuff that kind of happened to me up until I think I was like 14. And he looks at me, he goes, are you okay? Yeah. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I get about? that all the time. Like, as soon as, like, anyone digs deeper into my childhood, my past, I just get, like, the, are you all right? It's like, no, not really. But, like, this whole, like, because I'm always of such two minds about this. Because there's a part of me that does agree that you can be more than what you were raised in. But it's also a fucking lie to think that it doesn't affect you. Like, I bear the scars of my trauma every single day that I'm alive. And it comes out through anxiety, through disassociation through insecurity, depression, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I absolutely don't have. <laughs> Knife cuts. They're great. Um, it comes out in all these little neurotic ways. And like, even talking to my family about it, uh, without getting too, too personal in a recent conversation with my aunt, she said, well, look at how well you turned out. And it's like, but that's not okay. Cause there's always that line about like, you know, pressure makes diamonds. You know what pressure also makes? A bunch of fucking broken rocks. Like, to hope that someone who is broken will always turn out okay is just... It's tragic and it's scary because there's so many of us who, to get super deep, are not here today because of that. So we can't ignore the environment that someone was brought into. And we can't ignore how they're socialized and how they're raised. It, however, is not an excuse to be a shitlord which is how I've always described it, is that my trauma is not an excuse to be a shitlord. If that's the case, then I reserve the right to have a purge every single month. I would like to cash in my chips, and once a month, I would like to have a purge. I would like for it to be like in uh, Jumanji, where I get to have like an old-timey hunter's hat, oh and I gosh. get to have a purge once a month. So you get a, pin a pith helmet? Yes. And are you fighting with a spear or like an elephant gun? Probably like a bayonet or something. I've given this thought. <laughs> like, if that's I can the tell, and that's why I'm afraid. <laughs> like, if that's the case, if we get to trade in childhood trauma for shitty behavior, I would like one purge, please. But that's not that's not how society works. You don't get to trade in your trauma 
for being a shitty person. That's just not how. No. I mean, like, could I trade some of these chips in for jelly beans? I don't yes, know. you absolutely okay. can. Why do you think I get you nice cheese? I love nice cheese. I feel like the last several cheeses I've been very on the fence about, but Tori has been incredibly enthusiastic oh about. Oh my gosh, like, it makes me so happy. The champagne cheddar you really liked. Yes, and I ate the whole thing. Um, I will tell you that uh, my tastes have gotten very interesting. I want to go to this European market so bad on the other side of town because it's got a bunch of Russian shit. Why don't we go? I can't get you to leave the house most times. I know. She says she wants to do, she says she wants to do things. And then I ask and I say, let's do it. And then I never hear back. Hey, we went to a museum last week. On the last, one of the last days before it closed. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I had to see the artwork of my dead boyfriend. You, you did. And I had one of the rare moments where I looked at something and was like, I don't think I understand this. Because there are very few things that I'm like, I don't get this at all. Okay, so there was this one picture that we looked at in, like, corner when we were first walking in. And it had that girl kind of kneeling down with a guy like they were in the woods. Mm -hmm. That was Lizzie Siddle, and I completely missed it. Lizzie Siddle, I love. um, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti's eventual wife. She was an incredible artist and poet in her own right. Unfortunately, her stuff never really gets out there. Mm -hmm. Very passionate about this woman, not because I look like her. So passionate that you missed over (laughs) her Yes, and that's the funny thing is I saw her in like all these other different formats, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" Totally missed that that was her because it was a different artist painting her. I thought you were going to talk about the Beauty and the Beast painting we saw in the back. Oh my god! I became an uncultured swine very briefly, and a and we ended up making a friend because of we it. We did make a friend. He does kind of look like a cat, maybe a sloth. Yeah, he looks like a weird sloth creature. We're not talking about this book. Uh, so that's nature versus nurture. Uh, I mean. We could talk a lot about that. Like, there's the Marlowe monkey experiment that we could talk about. I don't know the Marlowe monkey experiment. <sighs> I had to put the drink down. Uh, so, the Marlowe experiment was an experiment on attachment. And Dr. Marlowe, mm. who was a monster, um, got a bunch of monkeys. And he said, I'm going to show how attachment affects development. So, he separated them from their moms because he was an abuser. And he gave them a series of wire frames. Uh, one was wrapped in cloth, and he called that cloth mother. And one was bare, and he called that wire mother. But wire mother had, like, a bottle attached to it. Cloth mother didn't. These babies, because they needed something to hold on to, would forgo their needs because they just needed something to hold. So you'd have these, like, starving, like, just disassociated monkeys holding desperately onto these like wire frames because they just need something to hold something that feels more like their actual mom. Uh, and then they grow up to not know how to care for their own children. to not know how to care for themselves. And I remember reading that in high school when I was peak <laughs> disassociative and detached. And it really struck me because it, again, it's easy to say that, well, I've overcome my trauma. You hear that a lot with people who are traumatized. I've overcome it. Have you, though? Have you? Because you always see it in little tells. It's drinking too much at parties. It's staying up late. It's going to bed really early. It's crying in inappropriate times. It's... Why do you come for me so? I mean, I'm there. Like, me and my friends all have, like, this very elaborate language of, like, this movie is not dead parent approved. Because... No one likes going into a movie, like, on a date or something and having a full fucking nervous breakdown. 
just because like this movie is not dead parent approved. Oh my god, I lost my shit at uh, Big Fish mm-hmm. when the dad dies at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I was sobbing in the theater for like ten minutes after. My boyfriend at the time was like, um, we need to go. And I like could not stand up because I was crying so hard. I lost my shit during Endgame. Oh. Yep. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Endgame, I was just inconsolable. (laughs) I can see it. Yep. So we're never watching Endgame at my house. (laughs) Just... I'm going to, like, give you a list one time. Be like, we're going to hang out. Okay, what movies are we watching? Tell me which of these are dead parent approved. Right. Tell me which one of these uh, can you get through. Uh, fun story. I think I've told this on the pod before. Uh, my friend and I ended up watching The Lion King, like, the fall after my mom died. And I just remember breaking oh, down. Oh, shit. <laughs> and my friend looks at me. Because neither of us thought it. Because we were babysitting. And it's like, yeah, the kid wants to watch Lion King. Whatever. And I, you get to the end where it's like, Dad! No. And I just... I like the like the the just the quiet sob of just like tears rolling my face. My friend looks like I'm a monster, dude. I cried at Frozen two in a theater full of small children when Anna singing "Do the Next Right Thing." So I'm like, this is the ultimate song about depression, about just getting up and moving. And I'm like, I, I cried during Tangled during a Mother Knows Best. If you, oh. want, if you want to understand an abusive Southern parent, we can have a have a conversation a, a gaslighting southern parent if you if you cried during mother knows best we've had a similar childhood and you can cash in for one hug from me <laughs> why is it trauma equals one hug from amanda that pretty much you ha- it has to be verifiable you can't just like walk up to me and hug me at like whole foods you have to be vetted unfortunately all right so there are a lot of personal things that affect the narrative um Emily Bronte's book was published under the name Ellis Bell. We've kind of talked about this with her sister, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, they published under men's names because they couldn't get their books published as women. I mean, because they weren't good authors. Sorry. <laughs> Charlotte was good. She just had a really weird concept of what is socially acceptable with an in man. Anyway, um, so Charlotte actually edited this book because her sister died before it could be published. Mm-hmm. So that may have a lot to do with it. Sure. Um they had, you have a lot of notes here, um, about her brother. Um, no one liked him. He, their brother got into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, he drank a lot. Yes, he did. He ended up dying partially because he drank too much. Which is a thing that can which happen. Which is a thing that can happen. Um, it severely affected their family. Um, he had a lot of debts. So Hindley kind of shows up. I think because of her brother. His name is Branwell. Branwell, yeah. I keep wanting to call him Bram. Uh, because I've been in a deep dive of George R. R. Martin's failed sandbox. So <laughs> you were you were talking to a lot about the gin craze as well. Yeah, so this actually happens after the gin craze. Uh, when I was spitballing with Tori, I thought that it happened sooner too. It's about 100 years after the gin craze. But the gin craze was this thing that happened in England where because gin was plentiful, uh, people were kind of insane. Uh, think about what led up to American Prohibition, where alcohol is very plentiful, and men had free time, and then they would get drunk, and they would come home, and I, according to Prohibition, was like, beat their wives and stuff. Uh, so, gin was an insane thing um, that apparently caused all the ills of empire, 
And because of that, a bunch of temperance movements started after that. So this was like 1700, 1750s and stuff. So you get into a world where when this book is written, there's a lot more temperance. So the idea of like being a drunk is way less socially acceptable. So I think if this book came out maybe like 100 years before, 100 years after, no one would look at these guys and bat an eye and be like, oh yeah, this guy likes to party or whatever. Um, so that's a lot of the gin craze. I, my grandmother used to say unprovoked gin kills. Like, just unprovoked, like, not talking about, like, anything else, just gin kills. And I remember that. And now here I am a gin drinker, which I think is hilarious. And I hate that I would, suppose I would shame my grandmother. Um, but, but we also use it sparingly and in cocktails. Sure. <laughs> sure. Wait a minute. <laughs> just I, I do not drink gin meat. Um, oh, okay. I don't know. Well, no, I'm lying. I know one person who can drink gin meat. No one else I know is as a, is such a moody Victorian poet that they can have a cup of gin. That's that's intense. It's also because they're usually drinking the cheap shit. If you, I I would probably not struggle as much with the not yet sponsored seer sucker. Oh, I love them so much. That that's a smooth enough gin that I could probably get through. And that actually acted as the base for our lavender gin. It did, which I think is why I'm trying to get through. It tastes like medicine. I like it. But just because I took a class on, sorry, I'm going to screw this up, quaternionism, that was the whitest I've ever done it. Um, it's like the traditional medicines of like, especially Hispanic culture. I'm aware. Like I've had eggs rubbed on me. Oh, yes. But <laughs> I was reading this whole thing about lavender. And so I'm like, okay, I'm a moody bitch. I'm going to try this out. And it's actually helping a lot. And I'm a little surprised. But there's a... My my previous therapist, she had encouraged me to try aromatherapy for my anxiety. And I said, isn't that all psychosomatic? Like, it's in your head. She's like, well, your anxiety is in your head. And I was like, touche, bitch. <laughs> so, Wuthering Heights is considered to be gothic fiction. Sure. Which, sure. Um, and when it first came out, people were really kind of divided. Um, because there's so much physical and mental abuse of the characters. And there's so much about religious hypocrisy and gender politics and social class and the concept of morality. Um, my dead boyfriend, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, said that he liked the book, but, quote, a fiend of a book, an incredible monster. The action is laid in hell. Only it seems places and people have English names there. And I, sure. I think that's hysterical. I'm like, yeah, there's probably a lot of people with English names in hell, dude. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that's giving this book too much credit. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Well, Rossetti was also incredibly overdramatic about everything. I could not tell time. at all by his paintings. I know you love his paintings. She actually, Tori actually has the sticker on her laptop. I do. It made me so happy. Anyway. Finally drug her out of the house. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, my favorite painting that they had, they did not have the uh, postcard at the museum other than in a huge pack. And I was like, I ain't buying that. We tried. Also, uh, was that when we nearly fell down the stairs to our death at the museum? I think I blocked out nearly falling down the stairs to our death. And then the elevator. Oh my God, the elevator. <laughs> that scared me. I was like, we're going to die. It scared everyone. No, same as an incredible museum and it's in the old Lone Star Brewery. So it makes me really happy. Yeah, the Sama's great. Uh, I really, really like it. I think it's my favorite museum in the city. So definitely recommend. You haven't had to take a kid to the museum. I can tell that. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I haven't. I have no children. You know what's funny? It's more expensive to go to the museum than it is to go to the cinema. Anyway. Well, yeah, I can see that. I think actually the museum is nicer. Though they do have nights where you can pay and uh, you can be a drunk adult there. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Which I would love to do that. So, supposedly this book was written between October 1845 and June 1846. Um, I like to think that Emily was the goth sister. Mostly just because of things people have written about her. She didn't really have a whole lot of friends outside of two friends that she made at school. She hung out mostly with her family. She created worlds with her siblings. And then her older sisters died at school. And so that was super traumatic for their family. Um, She has been characterized as a, quote, mystic of the Moors. She was super religious, but really unorthodox in her beliefs. So basically, she wasn't super Anglican, even though her dad was a curate. Um... She died from complications from tuberculosis. It started as a cold, led to a lung inflammation, and then became tuberculosis because the water in the area was really terrible. And supposedly her last audible words were, if you will send for a doctor, I will see him now. That's not how you get tuberculosis. I think you get tuberculosis from hanging out with a lot of bad crap in that time frame because it was very... Yeah, it can really only be spread through, like, coughing on people so you really couldn't it's not a waterborne illness or it's not through like one of the other routes through disease which is kind of gross so i won't say it on the podcast unless you give me permission there's the fecal oral route uh yeah so that's enough may have been from the water that so like that's how you like cholera and stuff like norovirus cholera like that's from like the fecal oral route tuberculosis is pretty much like all through like spit coughing, particulates. I gestured. Nastiness. I mean, the how diseases travel is fascinating and horrifying. There's um, a whole podcast, uh, this podcast will kill you, that talks about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I have to listen to it sparingly because otherwise I go, <gasps> I'm going to die. And I am because human bodies are weak and frail. Also a podcast called Sawbones, uh, okay. which is very, very fun. Uh, sometimes inaccurate and i do uh get upset when they mispronounce names i mean i get upset when anyone mispronounces yeah you give me side eye from time to time i you very rarely because i try to look it up most of the time and and you ask me you ask me because i usually know the answer i'm like tell me how you do this in german or austrian so we have a few questions from our listeners which we love keep them coming guys except for this book i feel like it's wasted so from jessica was Catherine's ghost really wandering the moor? What what would she... I think it's why would she do a thing like why that Why would she for? do a thing like that for? Um, Catherine at one point in time says that she has a dream where she is going to be stuck on earth waiting for Heathcliff. And uh, that's part of her punishment. And Heathcliff also states that he um, will, you know, wants her to stay, torture him, drive him mad, whatever, just as long as she remains. Um, so I think that that kind of ties into it on purpose. It's supposed screaming children. Um, <laughs> yes, that's Kathy's ghost oh, in the field no. on the moors. Oh, no. Um, but I think she really was wandering the moor. I think if Lockwood hadn't seen it, then it would be something else. Like it would be like, oh, this is very psychosomatic because Heathcliff is feeling guilty for what he's done. But sorry, it's like a telltale heart kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's the real answer. Yes, it was her wandering the more wife. She's a dumb bitch. 
sorry. It, it's bad writing. It's, it goes back to my point of like devaluing a soul so much that she's tied to this one uh, jerk muffin. Jerk muffin? Yeah. That's... What do you want from me? I like jerk muffin. I, I like that term. You're welcome. Somebody called me Ladybug the other day, and I was like, I like that. You can keep doing that. Anyway. Love you, Raven. I know you don't listen to podcasts. Anyway. Um, do you want to read the next question? Sure. From our friends of Sisters of Sci-Fi. Two questions. Why did we need this book? Whispers. We didn't. And why is Anne Bronte not the most celebrated Bronte? Uh, why, do we, why do we need this book? I don't think we need any book. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think we need this book. I have a feeling that it's kind of like... Um, Come on, Brian. You can do this. Harper Lee. Uh, I think it's like plentiful. To Kill a, Marking, Kill a Mockingbird, where it was probably out of the public publishing domain. It's very cheap to get a copy of it. You'll see versions of it through like Barnes & Noble and their particular publishing. Amazon has cheap versions. Dover has cheap versions. It's a really inexpensive book to bring into a school, and it's they can fall on the sword of, oh, see, it's women writing. It's women writing British lit. Um, when I feel like there are a lot of other really cool books that they can use, like um, Madge Cavendish and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody touches her stuff because it's early sight. Anyway, we're also, not going into that. <laughs> also, uh, if you do still like ContraPoints after her numerous cancelings, I do still stand. Uh, she has a great video about opulence in which she talks about how the aristocracy shapes taste. So this, I think, is a peak example of a bunch of rich white fuddy-duddies who think a book is good and thus make everyone think a book is good. As far as why Anne Bronte is not the most celebrated Bronte, I think it's just because her work is not as plentiful as the others. Um, and also, I think Charlotte had a lot to do in making uh, sure that things got published after her sisters died. Posthumously. Posthumously. Yes, that's a good word. Thank you. So I think that's really why. Mm. Um, I will admit I've actually never read an Anne Bronte book, and I feel like I need to now. Yeah, we'll definitely dig some more into Anne Bronte. Not literally. Yeah, we're not going to dig her up like Heathcliff would. Um, or my boyfriend, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I was say, are, are, are we digging anyone up? No, let's not dig any. Anyway. Okay. Uh, and then we mentioned this at the top of the podcast uh, from our dear, dear friends, uh, Fuckboys of Literature. How many times did you want to throw the book out the window? Did you? And if so, did you consider not retrieving it? Um, I considered throwing it and not retrieving it, but because it was on my phone, my phone is a sweet, sweet, precious baby angel to me, I kept it. Uh, I did consider defenestration multiple times, but also because it was on my phone, I did not do so. Um, there are very, very few books that I read that I'm just unhappy about. And this was one of those ones that, like, I regret having read it like this took something from me because somehow i've managed to escape this book up until this point i feel like i heard amanda and i need to apologize you haven't hurt me because i am stronger than this shitty novel so <laughs> adaptations and i need you to know that a lot of you wrote in to talk about i need you to pause and how uh, many fucking people on twitter alone i got a bunch and then on facebook which we're also active on this song apparently is the, is more popular than that we can't play it on the bike. I know. I just want to show you the picture. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that now. Okay. We'll we'll link it in the show notes. 
Apparently, Kate Bush has a song called Wuthering Heights, in which she is in all red, I'm assuming after doing a mountain of ecstasy. Or cocaine. I, I think this is too nonsensical for cocaine. I showed the music video for Wuthering Heights to my daughter, or my stepdaughter, because I had, ah, I had my teacher in AP Lit played this for us, and everyone in the class thought we were insane. We're like, what are we missing here? Um, I showed the video to my daughter, and she just went, so basically, it's just this white lady walking around in a red dress, kicking her legs up and acting like a zombie. And I'm like, yes, you nailed it on the head. So now I walk around the house and just randomly kick my leg up into the air to make her laugh. And I'm like, he's clear. It's me, Kathy. And she's like, oh, my God, stop. And so that's I feel fun. like the music video is what took something from me. Yes. So we've acknowledged it. Everyone who wrote in to make us acknowledge it. I don't like it because I have not taken any hallucinogens recently. I personally want to reenact it just because I want to. I, I was like, I think I have that full outfit in the closet. I can't <laughs> stop you, but I will judge you heavily. Good. Um, as we were talking a little bit about, they always pick somebody super hot to play Heathcliff, which is probably why Heathcliff is still considered to be a romantic figure. By whoost? By sad teenage girls. You had to read this book for class. And so um. they watched the movie and then they thought that Heathcliff might not be that bad and they reread the book at 35. So you? So me, yes. <laughs> okay, to make um, jump. Like, wait a minute. Ralph Fiennes has played in, Tom Hardy, Robert Cavanaugh, Laurence Olivier. Um, it gets turned into a movie or a miniseries every few years. The most recent was um, I think 2012 with Kayla Scolidario or whatever, however you pronounce her name. She was the chick who played the druggy sister on uh, Skins who I loved. She's my favorite, Effie. Anyway, um, there have been two different TV series called Wuthering Heights or Wuthering High School, which kind of freaks me out. Um, I don't think I'd want to go to high school with these people. But I feel like you did go to high school with these people. I mean, I did go to high school in Southern California. So I feel like, I feel like everyone went to high school with these people. Yeah. Like, That's fair. Thank you. So we've already had to answer the question, did we have to study this in school? The answer is no for me. The answer is, oh my god, yes for me. And um, I hate it. Don't I, punish my children. Again, as mentioned, if this is like your favorite book, I would love to know why. Out of genuine curiosity, like I do not wish to mock you. I wish to understand you. So there are a few resources that we used. I didn't even look up to see if Crash Course did one on There this. is not a Crash Course. Okay. I looked up Thug Notes, who did a pretty good job, uh, Spark Notes, Wikipedia, The Book Tutor, which actually has a really good one. And if you want to see a bunch of British professors talk about it, there's a ton of YouTube videos. I didn't reference those just because I was like, no, I, I don't want to go farther into this than I have to. Yes, and if you'd like to uh, honor the fallen Bronte brother that no one acknowledges, uh, pour yourself a cup of gin and wait for death to take you. Fair. I think he's a great person. He was a good painter. I've never seen Bronwell's art. You have, actually. All have? the famous paintings of the Brontes are his. Oh, okay, then I have seen it. He was not a bad person. He was just an alcoholic. I mean, if that's the bar, then go ahead and get rid of me. Coming away. Oh, wait, no. No, we're done. Um, are we? No. So, um, this book personally hurt me on multiple levels, and I feel like I need to revisit it. So, unfortunately, I'm making Amanda revisit it. 
Our next book is going to be Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I have read this one, and I did hate it. Um, the only adaptation of this I've ever liked is the Seth Graham Smith, I think it is, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and that's just because he put zombie stuff over Pride and Prejudice. I don't. I, I have admitted this publicly now. I don't know why we did this. I don't think. I think Q one is not fun for us. I don't know why you decided this. I just put it on there, and you said okay. <laughs> I. I mean, I guess it makes for better television. This is a podcast. This isn't a TV show yet. Um. I have plans of grandeur. I'm like, give me some time to lose like a hundred pounds. That's what Photoshop is for. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to, I, I don't know why I signed off on these books knowing that I'd hate them. I don't know either. We can change the next couple months. That's fine. No, we're fine. Schedules are important. We must maintain schedules. So we are all over social media. Yes, we are. Um, unfortunately required reading on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, RR on Twitter. Yes. Uh, which Amanda Mans, which is awesome. Yes, we have a contest that wraps up today. Uh, so it's not too late. You have until I get home to enter unfortunately required on instagram mm -hmm. where we show you our cheese plates yes and then um our website unfortunately required reading.com where you can kind of connect to all of this stuff including our red bubble store uh, and if you'd like to suggest a book for the podcast or have a funny story or really hate something involving literature or love something involving literature or want to explain to us why you like weathering heights you can yeah. email us at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. There's also a feature on Anchor that you can leave us a message. Please feel free to leave us a voicemail. Uh, we will listen to them, and then we will pass judgment on whether we wish to make such message public. Um, also, if you would like to contribute to our Wine and Cheese Fund, please consider sponsoring uh, your two favorite drunk literary critics at anchor.com fm slash unfortunatelyrequiredreading. We would really appreciate that. We also do love our sponsors that we have. It is because of their support that we have the domain, that we have Victorian Lemonade, and that we are able to infuse uh, gin with lavender. Mm -hmm. We would not, well, I mean, we'd still be doing this without them, but it definitely does make our job much richer for it. Yes. Richer in the literal sense. So. <laughs> now, for the love of God, please go read a book. A better book than this one.